0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Reparations for slavery aren't exclusively about money. In Denver, organizers want to make Juneteenth a national holiday to teach people about slavery and its slow end.
1: To me, the education piece is a big part of that, centering Black history in our education. Celebrations like Juneteenth is a form of reparations.
0: Denver is one of the largest Juneteenth events in the country, with even larger aspirations. Then, extreme heat and droughts, Colorado braces for what could be another summer of wildfires. And Systemic, a new podcast from CPR News, with the story of one man's fight to reform policing after the killing of his cousin.
2: Sometimes, me and the officer run into each other and he'll be like, What's up, Lawrence? How you doing? I'll put my head down.
3: Your Evergreen membership helps fuel the programs you and your neighbors rely on. But if your credit card has changed or expired, your gift won't reach us. Please take a minute to check if your monthly membership is still active. Better yet, switch to Giving Monthly from your checking account and never worry about your credit card expiration date again. Call 800-722-4449 to update your giving information today. And thank you for your generous monthly support of CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Wildfires are already burning in Colorado. Meanwhile, forecasters warn of extreme fire danger in parts of the state. And as of this morning, the Grand and Paradox Valleys are under an excessive heat warning. Temperatures are expected to reach 107 in Grand Junction tomorrow. This all paints an unsettling picture of what summer may look like. CPR's climate and environment editor, Joe Wirtz, is following these conditions. Hi, Joe. Hey, Ryan. The National Weather Service issued an extremely critical wildfire weather warning for northwest Colorado just last week. And this is unusual, right?
4: Yeah, super rare. Um, this came from the Storm Prediction Center uh, from the National Weather Service. This is a center that you know is usually issuing warnings about things like tornadoes and severe uh, thunderstorms. Oh. Um, so this was the first one of these warnings uh, in 15 years for this part of Colorado. We're talking about um, the northwest corner. Last time they got one of these was in 2006. And what forecasters saw was this confluence of, of different factors. We had really, really warm weather. Uh, really dry weather, no precipitation for a long time, dry vegetation, low humidity, all this combined with wind, wind right? So yeah. both sustained wind, just a constant hum of wind, and then really big gusts up to like 60 miles an hour. And that's, you know, that's a really gusty wind, 60 miles per an hour. That's what you would get in a thunderstorm. So all these factors come together and they issued this extremely critical fire warning. And
0: the result of that Hot soup is extreme fire behavior. We're already seeing it, right?
4: We're already seeing it, and what that means is uh, really aggressive fire behavior. These are fires that you know spread fast, have these strong convective columns, meaning that that, that it, it's it's they see weather within the fire. It, it, it generates this heat that goes up. And and moves the fire around, wow. brings channels of this fiery air, and it, and it makes the fire move and churn and spread. Um, it also means lots of spotting. This is when you have you know a fire line, and then little embers are going out ahead of the fire line and, and sparking little fires. So we're seeing spotting on these 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 fires. Um, extreme extreme uh, fire behavior is also really hard to predict. Um, there's a lot going on. It's you know there's uh, a lot of different factors and they all kind of feed off each other. So it's it's things can move and 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 change in often unpredictable ways. And that's, that's yeah, you, you need an initial ignition, of course. So I'm thinking like, what's starting these fires? Yeah. This is a super important point. Uh, almost all of these wildfires are triggered by us. It, these are human caused. Okay. Uh, overwhelming majority, uh, fire scientists tell us are, are, are caused by people. Now, lightning strikes account for some number of these, but really the most of these are are started by people or, or human related things like power lines and that that type of stuff. Um, so when they issue these extremely critical fire warnings or some of the fire, uh, uh, you know regular fire warnings. Um, you know these often happen in areas that can be remote and unpopulated. But you know that travelers, people throwing something out the window, somebody you know letting a campfire get out you know get out of control. Um, it's a big concern.
0: Okay, so I'm I'm imploring our fellow Coloradans to be careful, especially in yeah. the backcountry. In Metro Denver, where you and I sit mm. now, it, it, it's been really wet lately. Uh, the recent spate of 90 degrees days notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> h- how does the metro fit in?
4: Yeah, this is, this is true. So Denver has seen, you know, record rainfall over the last few weeks. You know, certainly, it's been dry the last week or so, but prior to that, it's been really, really wet. Um, and it's hard to imagine if, if, if you're in the middle of a wet period and, and, and you're experiencing a bunch of rain, it's hard to you know wrap your head around the fact that uh, that some of this stuff is going on. But if you zoom out, you take a big picture, and you look at the drought map, we basically have two Colorados, east and west. Mm. Uh, the eastern half is relatively drought-free. The western half is in extreme drought. Some of the worst drought conditions we're seeing anywhere in the country. Exceptional drought is what they call it. Um, and 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 while drought is a major, uh, you know. Uh, risk factor for wildfire you don't have to have drought to have a wildfire we could get uh you know wildfires on the eastern half of 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 colorado um yeah the other thing to talk about is smoke Uh, yeah Yeah. i mean because we are seeing smoke aren't we joe already from fires elsewhere we are seeing smoke from fires elsewhere we're all connected you know uh through this stuff a lot of the smoke lately, especially on the on the western slope, has been coming from fires that are burning in Utah. Um, the stuff, you know, is 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 pernicious. It gets everywhere. Um, you know, it's 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 a bad time. I mean, it, it can cause you know acute problems if if you already have breathing problems, you're predisposed to it. Long term, we're talking cardiovascular problems.
0: I want to talk about how that relates to ozone pollution, right? Um, because I think of summer as ozone season, and we see those alerts. You yeah. Know, don't don't. Pump your gas at the height of the heat. That's right. Uh, what do we know about monitoring for problems?
4: Well, a couple of things. You're right. We're coming up on these ozone days. The Front Range, especially, is 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 um, um, a high risk area for this ozone pollution. You know. Ozone high up in the atmosphere is a good thing. It protects us, uh, protects the earth, but low low to the earth is a bad thing. It, it, it traps pollution, causes pollution. Um, and so, yes, we're coming up on these ozone days. Um, so we're looking at combined effects potentially of, of wildfire smoke and uh, ozone, bad ozone days, and ozone days are the worst when we have you know this l- low air layer that traps everything down called an inversion, and we're not getting you know that mixed up and move you know moving out of the area. Um, so yeah, we're looking at things that can compound. We do have good air monitors. They're all over the state. Um, So we do have a good idea of when it's bad out there. We have
0: a good idea of when it's bad out there. Of when it's bad out there. Okay. Easier to forecast, perhaps, than some of these fires, I guess. Joe, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Joe Wirtz leads CPR's Climate and Environment team. By the way, sign up for CPR's new climate newsletter at cpr.org slash climate weekly. All right. Juneteenth commemorates the end of slavery and Denver's celebration is one of the largest in the country. Organizers here are on a mission to make it a national holiday.
1: Juneteenth itself is the day that Black people really learned about their freedom.
0: That is Erica Wright, who helps put together Denver's events, which takes place this coming weekend. She says while President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, it took a long time for word to spread.
1: It was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed that um, in Galveston, Texas, news finally broke that people were free. So, yeah, it's a celebration of that day. It's a celebration of the delay.
0: Juneteenth is already an official holiday in Denver. Colorado recognizes it as well, as do most other states to some degree. But the federal government has yet to follow suit. Last year, U.S. Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris unveiled legislation to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Now that Harris is vice president, activists have renewed hope. Several petitions are also circulating, one with more than a million and a half signatures. Meanwhile, local celebrations continue in Denver. that includes a street festival with vendors and music. Erica Wright says she never learned about Juneteenth in school.
1: I was actually twenty five when I found out about the holiday. I was watching an episode of Blackish and they had a specific like Juneteenth episode.
5: Can we have one day where the country acknowledged it? It would feel like. I don't know, an apology.
2: Wow, can you imagine that? Oh, hell no.
1: Instead of waiting
5: for an apology, why don't we just do something? I mean, if we wanna honor the end of slavery, then
4: we should celebrate Juneteenth. Wait, that's what Juneteenth is? We don't celebrate the end of slavery, but you wake us up early on Cyber Monday. (sighs) You are a bad black person. Yeah. You know what, not anymore. From now on, we will be black out loud. Our whole family will celebrate Juneteenth. Boom.
1: And I just took a moment and I was just like, what is this? How did I not know about this? I asked my dad. He said he didn't really know much about the holiday either.
0: Erica Wright sees it as another example of how whitewashed US education is. And she sees rectifying that as an important aspect of reparations
1: to me the education piece is a big part of that so centering black history in our education celebrations like juneteenth is a form of reparations
0: and a national holiday she says is the logical next step
1: juneteenth is a really healing holiday and i think that's a big reason why it needs to be made a national holiday it's one day of the year where we get to continue this conversation that was so front and center in 2020 And if we can acknowledge it one day a year where we revisit this, like slavery is a part of this country's history. This is what needs to be done moving forward.
0: Wright does think more people are learning about Juneteenth, and she gives some credit to the pandemic lockdown.
1: There was a lot of loss that we experienced as a country like during COVID. But had COVID not happened, I don't think we would have had the racial justice movement that we had last year if we weren't all glued to our screens. I don't think a lot of people would have learned about Juneteenth if they weren't seeing it in the news and glued to their screens during COVID.
0: And she says because Denver's Juneteenth celebration was largely virtual last June, it reached a new audience beyond the Mile High City.
1: We had people from out of state reaching out, thanking us, saying like, finally, they got to celebrate from home because their city didn't host a Juneteenth celebration.
0: And so starting Friday, in-person Juneteenth events return to Denver. But the virtual aspect will continue as organizers frame it on the street and broadcasting live. Performers include the Atlanta R&B Group 112 plus Denver's own The Grand Alliance. Denver is not the only Colorado city celebrating Juneteenth. They'll mark the occasion in Colorado Springs this coming weekend with a free festival in America the Beautiful Park. In Pueblo, there will be vendors and a vaccination site Saturday at Bessemer Park. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Me up. Huh. Don't me
3: the end was near, the work was enormous. How did Colorado lawmakers get it done?
0: Counting down the minutes so you can get to your bed. It's been that and Cherry Coke.
4: Funny to think about all these laws getting pushed across the line by people who are basically on their last legs of Cherry Coke.
3: (laughs) How, and more importantly, what state lawmakers accomplished this session in the latest episode of the CPR News Politics Podcast, Purplish. Everywhere you get podcasts.
0: The parents of Devon Bailey stood behind Governor Jared Polis last summer as he signed sweeping police reforms into law. Bailey's parents reflected that it came too late to protect their son, whose death at the hands of Colorado Springs police generated both debate and protest. Bailey's story features prominently in an episode of Systemic, a new CPR podcast. Let's listen as Bailey's cousin works to turn the worst day of his life into full-scale police reform. Here is Systemic host and producer Joe Erickson.
6: Lawrence Stoker dreamt of making a career in pro football before an injury forced him out of the sport. He's 20 years old, a forklift driver, and a father for the first time. She looks a lot like you, sir. She's got your face.
2: Yeah. Yay! See, daddy's girl.
6: Every time he looks at his daughter, she reminds him of how lucky he is. Both Lawrence and his cousin Devon Bailey were expecting their first babies at the same time. Only Devon never got the chance to meet his daughter.
2: Before he died, we would talk about our kids because I had a kid right after that happened. He was having a kid right after that. And we talk about our kids, like, people are like, I wonder what you, how cute your daughter is gonna be. I'd, be like, I'd say the same thing, and we'll talk about what we're gonna do for them, where we're gonna send them to school. We, where we live is not the best schooling, but we know if we send our kids up to up north, Colorado, they'll be cool. Like, we used to talk about stuff like that, you know, and our futures and stuff.
6: Lawrence was born and raised in the black neighborhoods of Southeast Colorado Springs. All his family, Cousins, aunts, uncles live within a few blocks. They're a close-knit family and rely on each other for love and support. Growing up, Lawrence and Devon would hang out in the park near the houses.
2: We grew up together. We played football. He's my black cousin, so, I mean, his, me and our families be chilling. And we've always lived in the same neighborhood ever since we was born. Never moved anywhere or nothing, so we always knew each other.
6: Then, on August 3rd, 2019, everything changed.
2: I had texted him that that morning. We was just clowning on each other over Messenger, calling each other ugly and stuff, just clowning. Uh, Devon was like, come down to uh, Charles and Chauncey's.
6: After meeting up with a group of friends, including Anthony Love, they all decided to head back to Devon's place to hang out with his girlfriend, Laquana Gardner.
2: I went down there and they was chilling all down there. Uh, They was drinking, because that's what people do. Uh, They was drinking and just chilling. And while we are there, the guy Anthony Love was getting real drunk and was being loud and stuff like that but we, that's just normal stuff because that's our friend. But he got to talking like really weird. He got to saying like things like, can't no one here beat me up, stuff like this, just being ignorant. Anthony Love started like being real belligerent, drunk, started throwing stuff on the ground, like trash and stuff.
6: When Anthony Love started to pick on Laquana, Lawrence stepped in between them.
2: We had kind of, gotten each other's face, and uh, he swung at me. He missed. I swung at him, and I hit him. He kind of grabbed me. We fell to the ground. So Devon picked us up, and he picked me up, and then he got mad and wouldn't call it cool. And, and he was saying like things like he was going to get us back. We were going to pay for it. He was going to kill us.
6: After this scuffle... Devon and Lawrence left, believing that love would calm down and everything would be cool between friends. The cousins started walking to Lawrence's house.
2: We got to the corner of uh, Donovan Drive, that's, where, that's right before Proust, and we got to the corner and we walked up Proust just a little bit, and I turned around and I seen the cops. But we just keep walking, we didn't even pay them any no attention. So then they turn on their lights and like, they turn on, they kinda ah. up to us real quick and turn to the side. So I look at him, he look at me. He like, you know what they put up for? Like, I said, no. Not emergency. Hi, also, up. I was calling. I'm a in fountain at the,
5: what's the name of the
6: After Lawrence and Devon left the house, a dispatcher received a 911 call from Anthony Love. In it, Love claimed the cousin had robbed and assaulted him. A false report Love would never be charged with.
4: So I'm walking down the street, there's these two black guys. One of them has again they approach me, they're like, What's in your pockets? Then one of the guys start hitting me and I fall down to the ground and the other guy pulls out the gun and he's like, You better tell me what's in your pockets
6: and... Officer Blake Everson's body camera footage shows another officer, Sergeant Alan Van Land, approaching two men and asking them questions.
2: And I turned around, and I seen the cops. He kind of like came up intimidating. He didn't come up like, just any kind. Of, let me talk to you, and this and that. It was like, came up with his hands on his uh, gun, looking at me like, itch- intimidating.
4: What's going on today? 50%. All right, what are your names? What's the reason. All right, so we got a contact that, uh, keep your hands out of your pockets. Oh. Um, possible assault that occurred? Yeah. Oh, Two I didn't people. touch you. Okay. What's your name? Devon. Devon? What do you go by?
2: The way he came up an officer with his hand on his gun. Like, he, you can't... You look, look the body cam, you can only see one view. You can't see no one's hands, like his hands, or his eyes, how he's looking at you, or his facial expression. But it came up like he wanted to do something. So that's why I like, kind of threw my hands up real fast when he said that.
4: Okay. Put your hands up for me a sec. Put your hands up. Right. So we got a report of two people, similar descriptions, possibly having a gun, all right? So don't reach for your waist. We're going to just check and make sure that you don't have a weapon, all right?
0: Hands up! Hands up! up.
6: Devon runs away from the officers. His hands are near his waistband. Next, seven shots are fired by police. Devon falls to the ground. Three bullets strike him in the back, another in his elbow. The rest were unaccounted for in a public park.
2: Not not being able to do nothing really, really affects me. I felt helpless when Devon was getting shot.
6: With Devon on the ground bleeding and in handcuffs, Officers then discover a gun between his legs. It's the first time they've seen it. Lawrence watches from where they were stopped.
2: I kinda was like froze. Like I didn't I didn't really know what to do and I I just started falling on the ground. They got the the cop got on top of me. I was asking, I was crying. I was like, what's wrong with him?"
6: Lawrence Stoker was taken into police custody, held for nine hours, and interrogated for seven. While he sat alone, he wondered if his cousin was alive, but the police told him nothing. It was 2 a.m. when officers told Lawrence that Devon had been killed. He was released and charged with assault from Love's false 911 call. Lawrence would never be charged for the alleged robbery. He remembers coming home that night to his mum and family. He saw the relief on their faces. They thought he'd been shot too. And then he also saw their grief and disbelief that Devon was gone.
2: When I got home, my dad was on the couch, my mom was on the couch. Everyone was crying. It was like, I'm just glad it wasn't you. Like, my mom was didn't know what to say. I never seen her like that. I was like, I, I was out of it. I didn't, I ain't never been through nothing like that.
6: Devon Bailey's death hit his family hard. After several years getting in trouble with the police, Devona turned the corner. Though in the weeks before his death, he pleaded not guilty to charges of sexual assault and was awaiting trial, family members, like his uncle, Danny Hill, felt he had lost his life just as he started to get himself together.
2: Starting his family... And he was going along with everything. <laughs> got a job, got a car, has a girl, has a kid on the way. Man, it was a whole bunch of scared dudes behind a gun. With the uniform on, with the uniform. I'm mad, I'm pissed, I'm anxious. I'm upset, all of those. You can't roam the street. Without watching your back from the own law that's supposed to protect you. I have a target. I mean, look at me. The same target I have, every black person has.
6: And for Laquana, Devon Bailey's girlfriend, she can never forgive or get over his death.
5: I'm only 18, and I miss him, I need him, and like no one understands that, and they took him from me. They really took him from me, and I don't like it. They took him from me and Rosianna, and he never even got to meet her, and that hurts. Those police officers, I, I guarantee you they have families. I guarantee you they go home to their families, and Devon didn't go home that night. Devon, didn't even take another breath that night. All because of them. This is how it has to be for our voices to be
6: heard. While grieving his cousin, Lawrence also experienced the anxiety of facing his assault charges in court. When a trial came, almost three months later, he was acquitted by a jury after only 10 minutes of deliberation. But even after that day, hard reminders of the incident and what police can do lingered close to home for Lawrence.
2: The cops that arrested me and did that, are still in their neighborhood and still patrol it. And I go, there's a come and go right up the street from where I live, like two minutes. But there's a spot where they just they try to catch people speeding and stuff. But it's right at that come and go. And sometimes me and the officer run into each other, and he'll be like, "What's up, Lawrence? How are you doing?" And I'll put my head down.
6: But how were the officers still on the street, working as normal? Deadly force is justified if the risk of death to an officer or a member of the community is deemed imminent. In Devon Bailey's case, police argued this. But they had more protection and justification because in Colorado, the law goes further. In the state, police are given the right to shoot a suspect prevent them from escaping custody if they reasonably believe the suspect used a deadly weapon or threatened to use one during a crime. It's called the fleeing felon law and there's a grey area when police respond to a false report but it's this law that the grand jury cited in refusing to indict the officer. In the wake of the shooting and the lack of charges against the officers, tensions grew between the police and the community. Lawrence used this experience to motivate his friend, Charles Chauncey, to rally people to protest the police.
1: We
5: continue and will continue to seek justice. A clear message in the name of a young man. They
2: believe deserved more. We still got these officers that are out here that murdered Devon Bailey when he was running away and he got shot.
6: Lawrence also started attending NAACP meetings and was mentored by older activists.
2: I protest a lot. I've been protesting ever since Devon died. So the protesters when Devon died were harder for me because I was new. I would see like my older activists, people that were teaching me and helping me through stuff, I would see them get arrested. And some stuff would happen inside the group to where they would collide and bash heads because they were just trying to get so much done in a short period of time. So they would co- collide sometimes. I ain't gonna lie, they made me dead. I don't, Colorado Springs police don't play. <laughs> like, how people are able to do, like, run right by them and stuff. Like, the, the police here will grab you. They, they'll choke you. They'll throw you on the ground. They're not going to go for the, you assembling and you getting a lot of people. They don't do that. Not here for some reason.
6: A few weeks after Devon was killed, protests grew after another police-involved death in Colorado.
0: The long weekend brought more demonstrations calling for justice for Elijah McClain.
6: If Elijah don't get justice, then
2: they
0: don't get no peace. Will Carter lives in the neighborhood next to Elijah McClain's. All black lives matter, but when it happens close to home, you know, it hits a little different.
6: Elijah McClain, a 23-year-old black man, died in hospital after police used chokeholds and held him on the ground for close to 15 minutes. A neighborhood called 911 to report seeing McLean walking down the street flailing his arms, but that he appeared to pose no threat. The pressure from these protests didn't go unnoticed.
5: What I found out, really, what happened to Devon Bailey, um, someone who uh, grew up in the same community that I did, and how his life didn't matter to those law enforcement officers, that was hugely problematic for me.
6: Leslie Harrod is a Democrat in the Colorado House of Representatives. Together with other legislators, Harrod started thinking How could they create change in policing?
5: And so we immediately began discussing a bill and how problematic our laws are to allow these types of racist, quite frankly, behaviors to happen and go unchecked on the streets of Colorado.
6: The ideas they discussed would become the foundation of Senate Bill 217. Its focus was to address key issues in police restraints, chokeholds, And put an emphasis on police accountability, where police misconduct would lead to criminal charges. Mari Newman, an attorney who represents the families of Devon Bailey and Elijah McLean, helped draft the bill with legislators. She brought forward ideas and wishes of Lawrence Stoker and other family members of Devon Bailey.
3: And so one of the things that we talked about was cases, the murder of Devon Bailey and some others, and the need to have reform in police use of force policies. In particular, One of the issues was that even though the United States Supreme Court ruled back in the 1980s that officers can't shoot somebody in the back as they're fleeing, clearly that message hadn't reached the Colorado Springs Police Department yet. And so one of the things we wanted to make sure to address was to make it clear in Colorado law as well that officers cannot shoot somebody in the back who is fleeing unless they present an imminent threat to somebody else in the community. So we wanted to make that 100 percent clear. The law is clear that deadly force can only be used when there is an imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death presented to the peace officer or another person. So when we look at this as applied to um, Devon Bailey's case, There was no imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death because Devon Bailey was simply a young man running away as fast as he could. He was not brandishing a weapon. He wasn't threatening the officers. He wasn't threatening any members of the community.
6: But when Colorado legislators reconvened in January 2020... Herod was unable to get momentum behind the police reform bill.
5: And so we had that bill in drafting, but I got to be honest with you, we didn't have the political will to get it even introduced, much less out of a committee and past both chambers.
6: Soon, the whole world started to change. In March 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic suspended Colorado's legislative session leaving any new laws in limbo. And then, on May 25th, George Floyd was killed by a white officer, and Black Lives Matter protests swept the nation.
1: There is a bullet hole in the state capitol. Windows are boarded up and doors locked. The aftermath of a riot that state representative Leslie Harrod says stems from decades of police brutality against people of color. What I
5: know is that people are hurting, people are frustrated, people are angry, and that is showing. In the first day of protest, I actually happened to be out there with protesters um, and we were shot at A bullet actually went into the state capitol Basically, chaos ensued. When
1: someone opened fire on them, the bullets
5: narrowly missing her. If you think about it, from there to there, and I was standing right there.
6: In the midst of widespread protests, Lauren Stoker saw a bigger opportunity to reform policing.
2: After the Devon thing happened, the George Floyd stuff came up. Me... Charles Chauncey and our mentors made a group with more people that could get into City Hall. So eventually we came together, we had a discussion.
6: In this same time, the Colorado legislative session reopened and Leslie Herod used the moment to help quickly revive police reform.
5: In those first few days of protest, we heard a clear referendum from all four corners of the state of Colorado that we needed to act and create change. It wasn't until the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent elevating of the murder of Elijah McClain that we really saw people take to the streets and demand change. It was the people of Colorado that said no more. We want law enforcement to be held accountable. and We want our lawmakers to lead that charge.
6: Less than a month after George Floyd's death, Senate Bill 217 was signed into law.
0: This is a long overdue moment of national reflection.
1: The law, the first in the nation to hold officers who abuse their position personally liable, as well as those who don't intervene. Chokeholds are banned, body cameras required, and nonviolent crimes can no longer be met with deadly force.
6: Senate Bill 217 also rescinded the flea and felon law. Lawrence's work in helping pass the bill is seen by many as a huge step forward and a momentous achievement, but he viewed it as failure.
2: We came together, we had a discussion, but the discussion got twisted up and kind of like, just went a whole different direction like it wasn't even my voice that was in it no more when this bill came out it was like other people that have a bigger voice and know how to talk politics you know like that that's what they mattered about
6: regardless of the fleeing felon law the officer who shot and killed Devon Bailey was also protected from prosecution because the police believed Devon posed an imminent threat to life. It's an argument law enforcement can use to justify lethal action, and that's also what a grand jury decided when electing not to pursue charges against the officers. This upset Lawrence. He was a witness to those actions, but he wasn't called to testify in front of the grand jury. He wasn't there to advocate for his cousin or given the opportunity to argue against the police story. He also wanted the bill to push grand juries in these cases to be more open and the system to be revised so that victims and the families would be given the opportunity to be heard. Lawrence's attorney, Murray Newman, Explain the importance of this change.
3: One of the real challenges with the grand jury system is that it's cloaked in secrecy. We have no idea what was presented to that grand jury. But what we know is that the initial investigation that was performed into the conduct of the Colorado Springs Police Department was done by members of the El Paso County Sheriff's Department and others who are very friendly to the Colorado Springs Police. And so, you know, what we see is an investigation that was tainted from the very beginning. So it's no surprise when a grand jury that's provided with a tainted investigation comes out without an indictment. That's exactly what the process is designed to do. So the fact that the grand jury proceedings were cloaked in secrecy and we have no idea what the information was that they were using, there was nobody from Devon Bailey's family or his counsel or anybody who was advocating for his rights who was allowed not just to present information to the grand jury, but even to know what it was the grand jury heard.
6: For Lawrence, as long as this system stands, people remain unprotected from police violence. And it sent Lawrence into a deep depression.
2: So, something I've noticed about politics is that they want you to budge for them, but they'll try to make it seem like they did something, you know? We passed something, but in a way that it won't stop anything. That hurt me because it hurt my self-esteem. Because I'm someone that, like, is a happy, good person before. Like, I, I was never a slacker. I had my own before. And a whole bunch of stuff. And then after that happened, it kind of, I don't know how to explain it, but it changed me. Like, I kind of got, got lazy in certain ways. Like, still to this day, I can't sleep. Like, I'd be like, am I stupid? Why can I not sleep? And I'll be thinking about like this dream or what happened or something like just a lot's messed up and you wouldn't think. I I, I didn't believe in stuff like that. I ain't gonna lie. I never believed in depression, anything like that before. But then after I started noticing, I got real like lazy, started losing things in life. My mindset changed. I started noticing the evil and like strategies that like the world, ha- like America has us, like a lot.
6: For his own sanity, Lawrence needed to step back from protesting and his work on police reform. He's still grieving and needs time to heal. But it's hard to move on when your cousin was shot two blocks away from your home. Every day he walks past the spot where Devon was killed. Every day he relives the moment.
2: Every day. uh, If I'm not in a car, I walk past it and it's two minutes away. My friend, one of my best friends live right there on that street. So, and then we have a portrait of him on on the wall too, right there with Devon. So I pass that, I look at that, and I think about it. Then like I'll go on the street where it happened and his candles and cross it right there. But there's a circle that we had made when we had spray painted the um, street. And that's where he died, because there's like always this shiny spot where his blood was. And like I, I always had this eerie feeling on this on the on that street and it makes me walk the long way because I don't like to go past it too much anymore.
6: The community created a memorial for Devon Bailey in the same space. Graffiti on
2: the ground, uh, circle where we're going to walk to is where he died, the exact spot where he died. We have his memorial, is right on the top of the cement. It used to be all white and there used to be different crosses, but you remember the police came over here and dismantled it, tore it down we need to kinda of clean it. <laughs> it's kinda of stuff falls all the time. We had um so we were working to to do more stuff for it before the coronavirus hit. We were gonna get a cement, um like a tombstone, actual tombstone where you can sit on to replace all this for it can look more uh more and more better and better and better. All this used to be, there used to be, this whole thing right here used to be covered up. I mean, covered in Devon stuff, along with Devon, but the police came and covered all of it up and took this away. So we had to come back again and do it again. And they came and covered it up and back again, so a lot of the days we would have to come back and just add little stuff time by time back again. <sighs> A lot of stuff. It used to go all the way down there.
6: Instead of bringing the community together, the memorial heightened racial tensions in the area.
2: People would come over here. I don't even know who it would be or what they would be driving or what, but they would come, like, like on like a mailbox right there, they would come, right like, Devon's in hell, a bunch of stupid stuff that shouldn't be on there.
6: Lawrence has been dealing with his trauma on his own. There are a few counselors who specialize in this type of grief. To have a loved one shot and the killer protected by law and patrol the streets you live is a unique type of trauma. Lawrence seeks solace and comfort whenever he visits Devon Bailey's memorial.
2: So I used to go there and lay down in the, the dirt and ask him like questions and like why and how and tell him about his daughter and tell him about my daughter and kind of just act like he's there, like I'm crazy. (laughs) So when I can't sleep, it's like a movie. I, I replay it over and over in my head. It just dawns on me at night when I can't sleep. Just death is always in my head. I'm 20.
6: Hopefully, over time, Lawrence will know how much his influence changes to police culture and accountability. He's a part of something special, a community movement demanding more change and more reforms. For Representative Leslie Harrod, it's pressure from people like Lawrence that created change in Colorado. She says that is a lesson for those seeking police reform across the nation.
5: The passage of 217, I think, really just showed the community how much power they had and reminded us, right, reminded us and community who legislators are accountable to. And that's the constituents who are outside of the building who said this system is brutal, it's inhumane, it's unjust, and it's racist, and it must end.
0: CPR Systemic, produced and hosted by Joe Erickson. Hear this and other episodes, which include Law Enforcement Voices, at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org. Joe also shares the stories of both a veteran and rookie police officer, a director of public safety, a law professor who gave up her career to become a full-time activist, you heard systemic today on colorado matters our team is carl bielick Allie butner anthony cotton andrea dukakis
3: michelle fulcher
4: matt hers michael hughes
3: carla jimenez
1: avery lill
4: pedro lumbrano
1: patrice mondragon
0: shane rumsey with special thanks to the systemic team and to climate and environment editor joe words i'm ryan warner This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.